Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santo Shrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. In today's Integrative Oncology Talk, I'll be talking with Dr. Linda Balneves. Dr. Balneves is an associate professor in the College of Nursing at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Previously, she had held academic positions at the University of Toronto and the University of British Columbia. Her research program has focused on the use of complementary therapies in the context of cancer and the development and evaluation of knowledge translation and decision support interventions for individuals living with cancer and oncology health professionals. She also engages in health policy, education, and access research related to medical and non-medical cannabis. Currently, Linda is immediate past president of the Society for Integrative Oncology and is Deputy Director of the Canadian Consortium for the Investigations of Cannabinoids. Hi, Linda. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm good, Santosh. How are you doing? Good. And for, for our audience, you know, the intro actually is, uh, is Dr. Balneves. So uh, good to actually have you on as a guest. <laughs> you can call me Linda. That's fine. <laughs> I will. Um, well, you know, look, it's great to have you on. Uh, we're really good friends, and we've been part of Society for Integrative Oncology together for a number of years. Uh, Linda was the the last president for the Society for Integrative Oncology and has done a lot of great work on behalf of the society. And now she's uh, she's really very, very engaged on uh, in medical cannabis research in Canada. So that's going to be the focus of what we're going to talk about today. So let's get into it. Um, you know, this is a really popular topic, and I'm glad we get to talk about it from a Canadian perspective. Um, we've had one podcast on medical cannabis use already, but I think we can really dive deeper into this subject. So I want to ask you first uh, about perception. Um, okay. You know, now uh, medical and recreational cannabis use has been legalized, right, in Canada. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you see the perception of uh, of cannabis use in general in Canada? What was it like before, and how have the attitudes changed um, since it's been legalized? Uh, and then, and then how, uh, how how have people started changing their habits of use? Mm-hmm. You know, I think Canada has always been very proactive and I think had a more balanced perspective around the use of cannabis. That was one of the reasons that it was legalized for medical purposes in uh, 2001. We were one of the first uh, countries in the world to do so and we did so not at a state level or province level, we did it across the whole country so it was consistent. Um, And Canadians have always been very supportive for people having access to cannabis for therapeutic reasons and not have their freedom uh, in jeopardy. Uh, you know, for example, being uh, at risk of incarceration. And I guess those kind of positive attitudes kind of drifted over towards recreational or non-medical cannabis. Uh, They have done numerous surveys over the past, you know, 10, 15 years that showed that Canadians really felt that it should be legalized. Uh, The attitude has often been that the harms of criminalization uh, has been worse than the actual harms of consuming cannabis. If you have uh, a criminal record for possession of cannabis, even a small amount, it limits the type of professions you can go into. It limits the types of education programs you can go into. It limits your travel. And it can have a real detrimental effect on people's lives. And so, you know, Canadians have always been um, much more liberal, I think, around cannabis. And as a consequence, in uh, 2018, uh, it was determined that we were going to legalize it across the whole country. Uh, And so I, I think since that time. I think there's even more openness. Uh, I hear a lot more colleagues and, and, and friends and family members that are willing to disclose that they've been using cannabis for a number of years. 
Uh, and if we dive into some of the, uh, the actual changes around use, we see groups like people over the age of 65, you know, they are the group that has the largest, most significant change in use since legalization. And when I talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, I had this 80-year-old woman that came up to me at an event and asked me to come by her bridge group because they want to know how to use pot. Uh, they always have a glass of wine and they're like, well, now that it's legal and before I die, I want to make sure that I try this stuff out. So I think um, things have really gotten more liberal. And I guess, you know, the bottom hasn't fallen out. You know, people are saying that our society was going to fall into disarray after legalization. And actually, nothing's really changed. So, yeah, I think we're still uh, evaluating here. I mean, I think here it's obviously a state by state kind of consideration. Um, and there are people who get concerned about uh, younger folks using uh, recreational cannabis or even uh, increases in uh, driver-led accidents. I mean, have you noticed any of those kind of trends in Canada? You know, what's been really interesting is that we have seen really no increase in youth and young adults in terms of their use of cannabis. In fact, a, a survey that was done one year after legalization saw a dramatic decline in people aged 15 to 17 in terms of their use of cannabis. I went from almost 20% to 10% were reporting using cannabis. So we've actually seen a drop, which unfortunately might mean because they're using e-cigarettes instead, because we've seen a dramatic increase in Canada uh, in that age group and using e-cigarettes. Um, as I said, the only group that's really increased in use has been the older population. You know, the data is still coming in in terms of the impact on things like workplace injuries related to cannabis, in terms of accidents uh, that we're seeing on the road related to cannabis use. And it's going to be really tricky to pull out whether there's an increase in that or do we just have people more open to actually reporting that they're using cannabis because now it's a legal substance. Um, there's been some reports that have suggested there's a slight increase and then there's been other reports that have suggested there hasn't been a change. Uh, and so I think we're going to have to wait another couple of years to actually see the true impact. Great. Well, um, I want to talk to you about prescribing. So mm. uh, this is different in the States also than it is in Canada. Where I practice, medical uh, cannabis use is legal, but recreational is not in Arizona. And so what I have to do is I, um, I give patients information. Uh, about where they can get a, a medical marijuana card, and then they end up going to a third party, which is a dispensary, and they meet with somebody separate who tells them what to take, and I'm kind of kept out of it unless I ask. What is the process like in Canada? So in Canada, uh, you know, since 2001, we've had a variety of medical cannabis programs. When we legalized non-medical cannabis, we took those regulations and embedded them into one large cannabis act. And so we don't have a separate medical cannabis program per se right now. However, people that want to have that card, that want to be uh, able to be um, documented by law enforcement as being a medical cannabis patient, they can go to their physician or they can go to a nurse practitioner and they can have a conversation with that individual and then they can fill out a medical form, an authorization form. It's very simple. It's only two pages. And it basically just indicates who the doctor is or the nurse practitioner, who the patient is. It asks how many grams they should use and for what length of time is that authorization good for? Up to one year. It has to be renewed yearly. Then they either submit that to Health Canada um, and Health Canada is our kind of national department of, of, of all things health. Um, and that's for individuals that want to have uh, a card showing that they're allowed to possess medical cannabis uh, or they want to grow it. You are allowed in Canada to grow a certain number of plants if you ask permission to do so for medical purposes. Um, other individuals, though, some people want to just go to the, the storefronts. They want to go to the retail stores, so they'll just go in there and purchase whatever their doctor has suggested, perhaps, that they use. Other individuals, though, will actually submit that form. The patient themselves will submit the form to a licensed producer, and they're licensed at a federal level, and they can apply to over 100 different places, and then they will get their medical cannabis will be sent directly to them. The problem is, is that if you go to a storefront, to a retail store, you can't claim it for your insurance because it's considered recreational cannabis. 
Whereas if you go through the licensed producers with your medical documentation, it is considered medical cannabis and you may be able to get some coverage for that. Um, so it's those two different systems. It really varies in terms of how doctors and nurse practitioners deal with that. Um, some are just like, I'll sign it, you figure out the rest. Um, and other people will have a really in-depth conversation around risks and benefits, talk about the potential side effects, the potential interaction with other medications that they're on, uh, and they also provide a lot more guidance in terms of route of administration. Are you going to use capsules? Are you going to use oils? Are you going to vape it or inhale it? Are you going to use an edible? Um, and not all health practitioners will go into that depth. For a lot of people, though, their healthcare provider is unwilling to have that conversation. They're unwilling to sign off on that medical authorization form. And so another route that many Canadians go for is to a medical cannabis clinic. And we do have specialized clinics that do exist, run typically by physicians, uh, where they can go in, have a conversation with that individual, get their form, and then either you know grow it, go to a retail store, or order it online through a licensed producer. It's not, um, some of those clinics have relationships with industry, which can be problematic, and we can talk a bit about those ethics. Uh, and some of those clinics, you know, you don't have a bona fide relationship with that client. You don't truly know all their health conditions. You may or may not know all of their um, medications that they're on. And so that can be a little bit tricky. The one thing that's really changed in the last year is we've had our first pharmacy get a license to distribute cannabis. And it's one of the largest pharmacy stores, chains that we have in Canada. And so now at least for some individuals, they can go directly to their pharmacy and talk to their pharmacist that has all their medication records to have a conversation about potential interactions or side effects they should be watching out for. So that might be a bit of a game changer going forward. So you can actually potentially get reimbursed for having your own plant and, and planting it yourself. You know, it really varies. Most of the third-party health insurers right now, our medical um, uh, pharmaceutical programs in Canada do not cover cannabis, but certain third-party insurers will cover dried capsule form cannabis if it has an, if you have an authorization. Um, I don't know if they will actually cover the plant and the growing supplies related to that. It's a, it's a good question and one that I'm going to have to look up. It's really tricky to grow, though. It, you have to own your own home. Um, you have to make sure you inform your law enforcement because, you know, if you have a Karen in the neighborhood who's smelling a bunch of cannabis, um, sometimes the law enforcement will rip the plants out first and then ask questions later about are these medical cannabis plants. Um, so we're seeing less people because it's so available now. Um, less people are growing it unless they're a really committed botanist or have a strain that they've been using for years that they want to maintain. You know, how many providers do you think actually talk about uh, medical cannabis use? You said that it's, it's just not that common here in the, in the U S um, I think that we talk about it, it's becoming much more uh, popular in, in cancer uh, clinics, but it's totally not something we're trained in, and it's not something that we, um, we really take an active role in. You know, the, the providers that actually educate our patients are embedded within the medical uh, marijuana dispensaries, so, mm -hmm. and, and I don't personally know what their training is. So I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, about how commonly people uh, bring this up, and then what's the training that that these people who have the clinics um, how do, how are they educated? It's a great question. Um, it, it's hard to say how how many practitioners, how many physicians are actually writing those authorizations. I probably could go through Health Canada because we, we they do keep a lot of statistics and data uh, regarding authorizations. I, I haven't seen one that's specific of how many practitioners are actually engaging in those authorizations. Um, I think we're seeing more and more um, 
physicians that are open to those conversations now that it's legal. But I think you've pointed out the biggest barrier for most people that are just in, in a regular practice or even in a specialty is they don't feel they have the education. And we've actually done some surveys with physicians in Canada that I've been part of, as well as with the nurse practitioners across the country. And a lot of them said, like, I'm willing to authorize it, but my biggest barrier is I don't know a lot about it. And we just did a study last year that was just published uh, looking at our nurse practitioner programs, for example, in Canada. And while 60% had information about cannabis in their program, less than a third had anything specific around dose, strain, you know, routes of administration. And that's really key data if you're going to have a good conversation uh, with a patient about using cannabis. And so for people that have the medical cannabis clinics, a lot of them have either learned over the years of working with patients. Uh, you know, if you have, I have one individual that I do research with and she's had something like 17,000 interactions uh, with clients related to, to medical cannabis across a whole host of conditions. And she actually is constantly looking at her database and her medical chart data to try to see what's working you know, what's the average dosage that I'm giving out for this condition? We do have some education programs, though, in this country and, you know, online that many people have taken advantage of in order to kind of augment what they've received in their training programs to gain more information. So, you know, I'm part of the Canadian Consortium for the Investigation of Cannabinoids. We have an annual conference every year, not this year, unfortunately, due to COVID, um, but we we have about three to 500 people come, mainly physicians, to actually learn about cannabis and learn about medical cannabis, learn about recreational cannabis and its potential harms in order for them to have informed conversations. And we actually put all of our lectures online. They're publicly available. But there's also other courses that you can register for that a lot of people will take uh, in order to be able to support patients in using medical cannabis. That sounds great. Um, you know, you, you were talking about training. I think that's very interesting how people are getting trained now. I remember back when I was in medical school and probably for you as well in nursing school, uh, we never even mentioned this. I mean, it was, it was not even uh, five minutes in my whole uh, training did I ever learn about any medical uses of cannabis. We didn't talk about it at all. Do you know, is it different, first of all, between doctors and nurses in terms of how much education they're getting? Um, and, and do you know what they're being taught and, and is that, is that changing as the landscape's changing? Again, I don't think we have a great handle on that. And I think it's essential that we do. Um, it's interesting. I, uh, I talked to one of the nurse, uh, undergrad nursing students that's in my program because I did a short presentation for an hour about cannabis and, you know, they've gone through their pharmaceutical course. They've gone through a lot of their, you know, medical, you know, nursing courses. And so I said to them, I said, what have you learned so far about cannabis beyond my presentation? And they said, it doesn't cure glaucoma. And my response was 1970 called and it wants its curriculum back, you know, because there's a lot more evidence around cannabis now. I asked if they'd learned about the endocannabinoid system. There, she's like, what's that? So, you know, that's one example of, of a provincial nursing program that has no content really embedded in it. You know, my personal experience is I've gone three times to talk to my program about adding it to the curriculum. And the response is often, we just don't have room. I think it's starting to change now. And I think what they're recognizing, is, particularly in medical school, is that um, there's starting to be more and more attention to the endocannabinoid system. You know, it's only been around since 1960, 1970 that we actually kind of un uncovered it and understood that there's, there's cannabinoid receptors throughout our body. And I think as more and more evidence is coming out, I think we're seeing more programs acknowledge we've got to at least address this. And with so many patients asking about it and using it, we really have to have our students to be able to answer some basic questions about it. I think what's been really encouraging is that we do see a lot of undergrad students, medical students in particular, that come to our conferences. Um, I also was at the American Cannabis Nursing Association meeting down in New Orleans in December, and there was a lot of nursing students that came because they're like, I want to know about this for my future practice, and I'm not getting it in my curriculum, so I'm going to do the continuing education. And so it's 
for part of that in Canada, the Canadian Nursing Association uh, has just received a bunch of funding to create a national framework for cannabis for nurses in our country and to develop um, an education program to go alongside it. So at least we can have some nurse-focused education that everyone in Canada can access. So it, it's, it's a beginning step. But one of the huge issues is we can't just educate our students. We have to actually educate our faculty. And in right. some of the research we've done, they said that's one of the biggest barriers for undergrad programs is our faculty doesn't know about this. So they don't really feel very comfortable teaching it. So I think there's a lot of work continuing education we have to do with our actual faculty if we're going to see it show up in our undergrad programs. Yeah, I, I think this, we're just uh, at the tip of the iceberg right now. I mean, you know, in our integrative oncology conferences, and I'm sure your conferences for the uh, Canadian Consortium for Investigation of Cannabinoids, everybody who's going to these conferences has some understanding of, of cannabis. But when I talk to my colleagues, I think I gave one talk uh, on, in this in this area, and I don't think anybody in the room knew anything about what I was talking about. These are very well educated oncologists, etc., and it was all new to them. You know, the endocannabinoid system. I don't think many people know about that, and it's really fascinating if you think about it. It really is, and it's it's so funny because sometimes you get this kickback, like, oh, it's ridiculous, you know. People are saying cannabis, you know, can cure everything, you know, it can help with Crohn's and cancer and anxiety. And it's like, that's ridiculous. And in the integrative oncology world, we often kind of say, well, you know, if someone says it's a cure-all for everything, you know, warning lights should be going off. But when you actually talk, sit down with someone and say, well, we have cannabinoid receptors throughout our whole body, from our brain to our joints, to our gut, to our, it's like, maybe there is something to this. And I think as we're starting to see more of the preclinical work happening, you know, the mouse models, I think people are getting really excited that there could be a whole line of new treatments, you know, and new interventions that are all based on the endocannabinoid system. And I think there's just going to be, it's like a snowball. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it's rolling down the hill. And I think people are going to get really excited about this, but we somehow have to get the word out. Um, and, you know, I still have that odd person that's like, oh, people just want to get high. And so Which not is only okay. do we have to educate I mean, about the endocannabinoid <laughs> system, we have to educate about the stigma because it's been a stigmatized medicine for 50, 60 years. It's going to take some time to kind of change mindsets around that. Yeah, but I, I think also culturally, I think what, you know, I, I just listening to you, um, I mean, what is wrong with, you know, if somebody wants to, they can get high. You know, I mean, we're, I mean, I, I just find that interesting. You know, I can understand if, if somebody's losing control, but we're okay with getting drunk. You know, just this, this idea, well, why are you going to get high? I can understand if you're at work or if you're just not interested in that, but it's also not the most, you know, evil thing. When, when we're okay with people getting drunk, going to, you know, getting, getting really excited when they go to a concert, anything, we're not that, we're not that closed off, I feel like, you know? No, and sometimes when I'm at a conference where I think there might be, be some pushback, and it's been, I've been fascinated about who pushes back the most, and it's, it's often people working in addictions, <laughs> I find, um, that seem to be the most concerned about it. But, you know, I, I sometimes will throw out a slide, and I'll have that glass of wine. And I'll have that joint or I'll even just have like a spray of, of cannabis. We have these wonderful sprays that you can spray. So it doesn't even impact your lung health. And I'll just be like, so, so what's the difference? What's, let's talk about harms. You know, I often will show up a slide of just the, the harms related to alcohol compared to cannabis. And it's like, let's do a comparison. Who, which one are you most concerned about? And I have actually asked that question. Tell me what's so wrong about getting high especially like we're, we're starting to do research in palliative care. Like what is wrong with feeling happy and high and enjoying your food and your senses are enhanced when you're at end of life. And I've only had one person kick back on me on that. And it was an, a person that was indigenous who said that she had seen so much destruction in her community from people that had used cannabis and it had impacted their educational attainment their ability to hold a job, it had resulted in incarceration, and it had impacted their relationships. And so, you know, there are one in nine people end up with a dependency with cannabis. And I think we just have to acknowledge it's not a benign substance. 
Uh, and for some individuals, it can be problematic. But when you compare it to other substances in our society, it's one of the lower risk ones out there. But that's also why I think it's good for us as healthcare practitioners to be engaged on this topic, because we can we can look for those warning signals. But it's also to help the other people who maybe you know they're worried about the stigma of it or how they're uh, how they were raised, perhaps, and just kind of opening up their minds to the possibility that maybe this could be helpful for you, because it's not the same as tobacco, for example. And just kind of saying, you know, it's okay if you want to if you want to get. You know, cannabis, I think it actually might help you. It's just, you know, not a big deal. I mean, I think well, that's the, important. There's been a lot of conversation about just, you know, the, the pain pyramid, you know, and just, you know, the different steps. And, you know, in Canada, we still have opioids before before cannabis, before cannabinoids. And, you know, people like Dr. Mark Ware, who's one of the international leaders is and a pain specialist is saying, why is that still the case? And I think part of it is that we just... We need a larger body of rigorously designed trials to convince people that cannabinoids may actually be one way to deprescribe opioids, reduce the use of opioids, and perhaps have less harms uh, compared to opioids. But it, it's funny that we're still having that challenge and people seem still resistant despite us having an opioid epidemic. Well, let's talk about research. I mean, you know, because I know this is this is so challenging, both methodologically as well as getting funding. Um, I know in the in the U.S., for example, uh, there different states have different uh, rules about this. I I mean, we're we're uh, coordinating one study with with uh, Houston, and I think part of that is because they have different rules in terms of whether they can study the use of medical cannabis than we do. So, I mean, what is uh, what, do you, what are your feelings about the challenges with research and perceptions um, in Canada? And, and do you get more assistance than we might in the U.S. with funding? Because when I talked to Donald Abrams about this, he said that, you know, for you to get NIH funding, you have to be looking at the harms related to cannabis. And you have to kind of, on the side, look at, oh, what there happens to have been some decrease in neuropathy. But that's not what we were looking for, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've been in meetings where NIDA has, has been part of the meetings. And it, by the end of the meeting, it's like the Canadians are on one side and NIDA's on the other because all they talk about are the harms. And I think we're a little bit more open. Um, I'll be honest, since legalization, uh, it's been a bit tough because all of a sudden all the funding competitions were around what happened after legalization. And most of it was on what, what's the harms of legalization? What happened to our youth? What happened to driving accident rates and, and, so, and mental health? And we're just now starting to see them say, oh, right, we need to also focus on the potential benefits. Um, and so I think there's still a bit of stigma uh, that we need to get over. We do have what's called the Integrative Cannabis Research Strategy, which is through our Canadian Institutes for Health Research. So there is actually a devoted program that is focused on funding research on cannabis. So that's a plus for us. They have just uh, released uh, about a couple of months ago, just before COVID, um, the results of the cannabis team grants. And so they had 13 to 14 team grants that were worth 1.5 million, which isn't a lot, but for Canada, it's a lot, uh, that were devoted towards researching uh, all different aspects of, of cannabis. So there was one for cancer, one for lung health. There was a, a whole bunch that were around neurodevelopment, particularly in terms of prenatal exposure and the impact uh, on kids. Looking at it from an indigenous perspective, looking at pain, both acute and osteoarthritis, and then all the mental health things. So there's one that was funded around psychosis, one around adolescent exposure, and then uh, for the veterans, looking at its role around anxiety and psychosis management related to PTSD. So that's been really encouraging. And those projects are going to be carried out over the next uh, five years. And so hopefully from that, we're going to get some really great data in terms of, you know, a whole host of, of health conditions. A lot of them are looking at the potential medical benefit of using cannabis. Prior to that, we had a whole bunch of catalyst grants. And so these are smaller grants, usually between 100 to 200,000 Canadian. That was really focused on just trying to get some ideas off the ground. So we saw studies around cannabis and, and migraines, some that were focused uh, on CBD 
particularly cannabidiol for anxiety and dementia and Alzheimer's patients, as well as things on can cannabis be a way of us getting out of the opioid epidemic? And do we see less use of controlled substances and opioids if we have a legalization of cannabis in, in the country? So again, we're waiting for that data to come out. That being said, um, we, I think, naively thought that we're going to legalize cannabis and there's going to be, it's going to be so easy to do research. Last count I heard is 12 months to get a research license so that a research team can actually have the cannabis in your lab to be able to do the preclinical work or to even do clinical studies. Um, they are supposed to have hired more staff to review the applications, but 12 months is a significant delay. And it's a little bit stupid because I could walk down the street and purchase 30 grams if I really wanted it from a retail store. So they kind of went overboard. And unfortunately, our Cannabis Act and the regulations around that have made things very restrictive um, in terms of actually having cannabis on site and doing the research with it. And I think we're really hoping that some of that is going to be addressed. There's been a lot of conversation from the research community so that we can speed up approvals so this research can actually get off the ground. Um, but it's slowly happening and we're seeing more and more clinical institutions get on board and to get their license to hold the cannabis so that hopefully that can speed things up for people that are you know, at universities but are doing their research in a clinical setting. So, yeah, I mean, I think if it wasn't for the regulation and delays, this would be such a hot area of, uh, for research. I think that everybody would be studying this because or every institution, at least there's so much interest. Um, I'm wondering, you know, it's different here in the U S again, partly because of our healthcare system. You know, I mean, a lot of our cancer research is, uh, is, is kind of spurred on by pharmaceutical companies and our partnership with industry um, and then the government does sponsor a lot of research, but because we don't have a real nationalized healthcare plan other than Medicare and the VA, you know, within the VA, you might have some national healthcare uh, research studies, but otherwise it tends to be more of an investigator initiated or institution initiated. Whereas it sounds like you guys have more of, uh, uh, you know, kind of an incentive for improving healthcare and funding related to that, right? Does do you do you feel like in Canada there's interest in studying cannabis to re reduce opioid use, or because of the quality of life improvement that is possible with using cannabis? Do you think that that's gonna that it's because of the healthcare nationalized healthcare? I, I think you know we've been impacted by the opioid epidemic, you know, like 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 the U.S. has, and I think there is a real push to try to look for innovation. Um, to, to look towards some of the data that suggests that, you know, especially from Colorado and Washington, that it reduces it. So I think there's been that real push. You know, in terms of the structure of the, of the healthcare system itself, you know, I, I think, you know, because it's a national system, we're always trying to look for ways to save costs. And cannabis is a lot cheaper than a lot of the pharmaceuticals that are out there. And so I do think a lot of the decision makers and the administrators are looking at that and saying, could this be a cheaper option for us? You know, our pharmaceutical, you know, costs are, I don't even know what percentage they are of our overall health budget, but very, very significant. So if there's a way that we could reduce that with less of the harms associated with things like opioids, I think more and more people are getting on board related to that. I also think too that, um, we, we really are committed to this notion of healthcare for all, no matter your social location. And I think that's what's really pushed medical cannabis to be legalized. Um, and I, it's really pushed people to respect people's choices uh, around using different medicines, even one that maybe is outside the paradigm that most people are used to. So I do think, I think that kind of philosophy has percolated down and made people a little bit more open to using medical cannabis. Um, but like I said, we still have a ways to go, I think, to address some of that stigma and not see every medical cannabis user as a pothead, which my research in 2008, 2010 indicated that some patients still felt that they were being judged and discriminated against. Um, but we're seeing less of that now.
Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your research? That was that was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was about perspectives amongst nurses, or was it um, in the public? So, back in two thousand and seven, eight, I became this accidental cannabis researcher, where I literally got grabbed in an elevator by somebody that worked for one of the local dispensaries, one of the illegal dispensaries, and said, "Nobody will talk to me about this research topic." But someone said, "You might, because you do research on plants." <laughs> I guess natural health products. So I agreed to talk to her and we ended up doing a study that actually interviewed uh, medical cannabis patients. And we looked at their perceptions around the risks and benefits, the health effects, and their experience of accessing it. And it really kind of opened my eyes back then to how much stigma was attached to medical cannabis. You know, you'd have a patient, an AIDS patient that was on 20 different medications, was down to 100 pounds, you know, mouth ulcers, just unable to eat. And when he requested medical cannabis to try to improve his appetite and deal with some of his pain, he got a prescription for uh, addiction services, you know. So hearing those types of stories really impacted me. And also just people told us that what is medical cannabis to you? And they're like, it's life. It saved me. Um, these are people that really struggled to manage quite horrendous symptoms, usually attached to a range of different health conditions, and really felt that cannabis had given back their life. And so that study kind of led to me being really interested in just the policies around medical cannabis, and then also interested on the other side of how health professionals were interacting uh, with patients. And so we followed it up with some national surveys looking at physicians as well as nurse practitioners in terms of what their information needs were, whether, whether they were willing or not to actually authorize medical cannabis and what they saw some of the barriers were. And we were really kind of hoping that research would inform some of the education programs. And in fact, I think they have in terms of the ones that have been developed today. So more recently, I've really kind of focused on the nurse practitioners and really trying to understand um, where they're at in terms of their programs across the country and where there's some real gaps in knowledge. And I think what's really highlighted is that we do need to develop almost a national module on medical cannabis that could be utilized by all our nurse practitioner schools across the board. Even more recently, and I'm, I'm sitting here waiting on a couple of grants right now, um, is we just got funding to actually look at um, attitudes around medical cannabis in long-term care. Um, it's actually in the facility that my mom was living in for four years. And every time I tried to ask the question about maybe using some CBD to help with her sundowning and her anxiety in the evening, I was told, don't even talk to the doctor about it. They don't want to hear about it. Um, and this is a facility that really promoted uh, that as being people's homes and really trying to support supposedly the residents autonomy. And they'd have things like pub night, but you couldn't even talk about cannabis. And so we actually got funding from that institution uh, that's going to hopefully be launched this fall, where we're gonna be talking to residents, talking to their family members and talking to the health professionals about their perceptions and their beliefs around cannabis, both medical and non-medical. And what are the barriers to it actually being implemented in a long-term care facility? Uh, and we also have that grant being reviewed by our Veterans Hospital uh, in, in Winnipeg as well. They're the two largest facilities that we have in our province for long-term care. And so we're going to be comparing it into more of a veterans uh, PTSD population as well as a rehab population. Um, because there's some real barriers to these individuals that are living in these centers from gaining access. They're Physicians are typically the gatekeeper about whether they get it or not. And so you hear and see a lot of family members bringing in brownies uh, or taking people off site in order to consume their cannabis. So I'm really excited to see where that study goes. And we're really kind of hoping that it may lead to some clinical trials uh, and looking at using cannabis and also some change in policies around it being used recreationally, perhaps in those facilities. Um, and then another study that we're waiting on is a provincial study of the use of cannabis by our nursing students. I've never had so many faculty members come on board so quickly, like in an hour, they're all like, yep, we want to be part of this. And how do we do this? Um, and so we're going to be looking at the use of medical cannabis and recreational cannabis by our nursing students to try to get a sense of how prevalent it is 
what are their beliefs around it? What's their knowledge around it? How are they using it in relation to their learning? How are they using it in terms of their clinical training? Uh, because again, we need to, I think, develop some more nuanced, respectful policies for our nursing students beyond the, I think my student's high, I'm going to report them to the professional committee. Um, that's not a great way of approaching this. We actually need to kind of have a respectful conversation with students around the use of cannabis, particularly now that it's legalized uh, for, for recreational use. Uh, and so if that study goes well, maybe it's one that we can extend uh, nationally. Do you think that there would be openness, open, openness to uh, studying that amongst physicians too? I think so. I think so. Um, there's been a few little studies done um, in, I've heard more in Ontario uh, and a little bit in BC. Uh, I definitely think there might be some openness. There's been a few studies done, not as many in nursing, but there's been some done in, uh, in the US as well as in Israel. Uh, but it's been mainly focused on what they're using and then also where their knowledge gaps are. And I, I think we probably could delve a little bit deeper in terms of how they're using it are they using it to manage anxiety? Are they using it for sleep? Are they using it, you know, during clinical training periods? Because to me, this notion of fitness to practice and fitness to learn is something that has to be really central in the conversations that we're having with health, health professional students around cannabis use. Great. Oh, and the last one, oh my goodness, I just submitted it yesterday. I can't believe I hadn't thought about it. Um, there's a catalyst grant on vaping. Uh, that's occurring in Canada because we doubled our rates in three years in terms of the number of uh, individuals in Canada that are using e-cigarettes. Um, and so we have a, a team that's pulled together uh, that is going to be looking at the vaping of cannabis products among uh, adolescents and young adults in Manitoba. And uh, we're hoping to also um, get participants from our Indigenous and Métis community uh, in order to ensure that we're capturing that community's uh, use and perception around vaping cannabis products. Uh, and there hasn't really been any research that's been done. This is a qualitative study actually speaking to individuals around vaping cannabis products. And they just became legalized uh, last October. Uh, so they've only been in the market for less than a year. And so we're really kind of curious of how people are consuming them. And given the risks around COVID-19, around respiratory issues, as well as the um, outbreak of E-Valley and the deaths that we saw in the U.S. last summer, we're really kind of concerned of how these products may be impacting a very vulnerable population. Well, I hope you get these grants accepted. Thank you. <laughs> I think I find out in like three weeks. It's absolutely ridiculous to turn around time That's right exciting. now. exciting. Spinning them out. <laughs> Um, I want to get back to some research questions. Uh, you know, one of the things I was wondering about is, do you think there are opportunities to partner with with uh, industry and with companies who are making these products? You know, the, the way we do with pharmaceutical companies, whether it's, you know, cannabis itself or CBD. Is there opportunities? For sure. Yes. Industry is knocking on all of our doors, wanting to work with us. That being said, in the back rooms, the whisper in the hallway with research leaders in this country, particularly at CIHR, Canadian Institutes for Health Research, is we do not support partnerships with cannabis industries. And supposedly they're coming out with a policy that is going to bar us from partnering with industry. If we partner with the cannabis industry, we've been told that we may not be allowed to apply to our national research funding body, which is quite intriguing because almost every competition in the last five years has suggested or required an industry partner. And the reason is, and you know, Canada is partly to blame for this, is that we didn't regulate who came into this industry. And so what we've slowly seen over the past two years is tobacco and alcohol are part owners of many of the licensed producers in this country. And because of that, and I think rightly so, most of our funding bodies have grave concerns about any type of partnerships with this industry. For example, the Canadian Cancer Society will fund no research in which there is funding from tobacco. And so you have to then figure out which licensed producer 
has been partially bought out by Benson and Hedge <laughs> or whatever, you know, Philip Morris. So you have to actually do the research. I, I've spent more time on stock pages than I ever thought I would to try to figure that out. And very sadly, there have been companies that have been longstanding for years that have been focused only on medical cannabis products that have been bought out by these larger conglomerates. And so as a consequence, you can't even get products for your trials um, without it being, I guess, frowned upon. And so it's going to make it very challenging to do this research if we don't have the support of industry. Just like it's impossible for us to do our clinical trials in, in cancer without the engagement and partnership from industry. Um, and you know, many of these um, licensed producers actually have medical research committees, you know, or they're conducting their own research. And so I think for many Canadian researchers, and perhaps even in the US eventually, is you're going to have to make a choice. Am I going to stay on the one side where it's completely industry-free funding? Or am I going to go, you know, and, and, and just simply work with industry and do my research there? The third sneaky way, which I'm starting to see people do, is we are almost laundering our industry money by funneling it through provincial funding bodies. So for in Manitoba, we have Research Manitoba. So if industry gives money to Research Manitoba to have a cannabis research grant competition, and it's then peer reviewed, then the money is not coming directly from industry, it's coming through a provincial funding body. So I guess what's gonna be really interesting is will CIHR accept money from industry and then funnel it through to their researchers? So I've seen some researchers who have wanting to work with industry, um, they're starting to kind of develop those pathways um, it'll be interesting to see how our national funding body reacts to that and whether they see that as, as equally problematic. But it's kind of, I don't want to work with tobacco or alcohol either, but at the same time, this research urgently needs to be done. So I think it's play, putting a lot of researchers in some really tough ethical positions. Um, I, I wanted to ask you also about how we do these studies. You know, I mean, this has come up in other conversations, but I'm talking about, um, you know, what what actually are we studying? What uh, form of cannabis we're studying? And and it 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 is important when we talk about translating this research into practice. Um, how how can we get more precise? Because you know, I think that the overall uh, impact right now is looking at you know, does cannabis influence, you know, certain symptoms or, you know, is it beneficial? But I think it becomes difficult to translate that into clinical practice when, you know, somebody is taking something and, and you're not sure exactly what dose they're getting, what the best route is. Many times it's just, you know, somebody who's growing it themselves or going to, a, you know, a store. How do you see us getting more precise where we're really able to prescribe cannabis? Yeah. It's, it's a great point, Santosh. Um, and I, I think we're, we're slowly making our way there. You know, number one is I think we need to be doing a lot of dosing studies. Um, and in fact, the, um, the cannabis team grant in cancer that was funded is, is a colleague, Dr. Lauren Kelly here at University of Manitoba. And she runs the C4T, which is a, a trial network devoted to cannabinoids in childhood cancer. And, and, and childhood conditions. And Lauren's group is doing a dosing study where they're actually going to have the parents and the youth provide the cannabis that they're using for, for cancer. They're also focusing on other conditions in other projects. And so the whole aim is to actually get the cannabis that people are using and do the actual analysis to see how much THC is in it, how much CBD is in it. Heck, they might even look at the terpene profile as well to actually kind of figure out what people are using for what conditions that they find are being effective. And then perhaps work backwards, you know, where so you, once you have that dose, then you maybe will do some mouse models, you know, where you're actually trying to see, does this seem to actually work? Because I think my concern is, is that we're kind of guessing what dose to use. And then people get the trial results and it's like, oh, it doesn't work. Cannabis doesn't work. And it's like, well, was it the right dose? Like CBD, 
2.5 milligrams of CBD, you might as well not bother. Drink a, drink a glass of water. So it's like, you know, we might need to be at 100, 200, 300. And so doing those dosing studies, I think, are going to point us in the right direction. Do some of that preclinical work where you do the, you know, pharmacokinetics and, and pharmacodynamics. And then we can work our way to trials. And I do think it's, while a lot of patients want to do the inhaled route, we have no clue what dose you're getting from that depending on your respiratory system, depending on how you're vaping it, et cetera, unless you're hot boxing yourself. And so your best bet is probably to come up with, you know, oils that are, you know, standardized, you know, they're coming from clones. So it's the same growing condition. It's the same genetics, you know, and we have a very consistent profile that we can then test across the whole sample versus trying to use something like dried product. Um, and I think that's how we're going to get to those doses. And, and, and it's tough because again, that's a big barrier to clinicians. They're like, how can I authorize something that I have no clue what dose to recommend? I would never do that with any other medication. But right? then there's still another step past that because that's, that's demonstrating mechanism that's demonstrating effect. But then, um, then, then you have to kind of almost go backwards when people are actually, you know, taking edibles and whatnot is making sure that that product has exactly a certain amount of you know, you have to regulate the industry in, in such a way that you know exactly how much is in each each product that you're giving, which there's so many. It's crazy. I mean, I, w I went to a dispensary and there's flowers, there's teas, there's chocolate bars. It's, it's, it's crazy. But what's interesting is the data I've seen in Canada is that 60% of medical cannabis patients are using the gel caps with oil because they, it's like it's a pill and this is, it's 10 milligrams of CBD and 10 milligrams of THC. And I know exactly what I'm getting. And yeah, there's breakdown and, you know, there's absorption issues, but it's less problematic. And I think you're right. Like our, our system's not perfect, but they need to be making sure that they're actually checking and, and ensuring that what's on the bottle is actually what's in the product. And at least in Canada, we have been catching contamination. We have been catching, you know, products that have expired. So the system is working. I just think we need to be doing more screening. Um, but, you know, and then we need to do the active surveillance afterwards to actually see the long-term implications of people using products, you know, once it's actually authorized. Do you see uh, any issues with uh, people studying or using plant-derived versus pharmaceutical cannabis. I mean, I think what you're talking about is more of the pharmaceutical cannabis. Where do you see us heading with the plant-derived or yeah. whole plant people talk actually, about? Actually, when I talk about the capsules and the oils, they're actually whole plant-derived oils. Um, so most of what we're seeing in Canada has been really focused on the whole plant, at least what I've been seeing coming out, because that's what most people are using. Um, and then on the flip side, most of the research in the past 20 years has focused on things like, you know, Marinol and Sedevex and, and things that are much more kind of pharmaceutical, even though Sedevex is, is a whole plant extract. Um, I have some concerns about focusing on pharmaceuticals. One, as soon as there's drug development towards a pharmaceutical, the cost is going to go through the roof. And we've seen that with Epidiolex, you know, where it's, I don't even know, $300 a bottle, $500 a bottle, and a lot of people can't afford it um, for something that can be much cheaper uh, if it's just the whole plant extract in a retail store. So I have some concerns about going to drug development. I have concerns about people then trying to market genetic codes and, and get cop like, you know, patents and stuff. And I think it really flies in the face of of this being a plant medicine. Um, and also patients don't want another pharmaceutical. A lot of patients have that attitude that I want something that's natural, not that it's not non-toxic and doesn't have effects, but they want something that's natural and coming more from a plant-based perspective. The other thing we forget about is that cannabis is a very complex plant. It's like over a hundred cannabinoids. We only talk about THC and CBD but there's a whole host of other compounds, including the terpenes and the flavonoids. And what we hear from a lot of patients is when you give me something that's a pharmaceutical THC, I get really high, I feel really gross, I don't feel comfortable, I stopped using it. They're like, but when I use something that has some, some CBD on board, if I use something that you know, is, is from a plant, I don't have the same type of severe high. 
I have a, it has a different effect. And I think there's a, a, a synergy effect, um, an entourage effect that they're starting to be beginning research on in that whole plant material. And I guess for me, I'm really driven by pragmatics. And what are most people using? They're using the plant-based. Let's focus on what people are actually using and let's not turn this into yet another kind of pharmaceutical industry that's going to rise, make the costs so we can't actually afford this in our healthcare system. So that's my personal perspective. That's a great point. Um, I wanted to ask you also about CBD, you know, because, you know, here CBD is not something you need to get uh, a card for, for example, I'm, I'm probably, it's probably the same way in Canada. Is it easier to do research in CBD? No. no CBD is considered cannabis. And so as a consequence, you, I, I guess the one question, I think there's something that if it's like point under 0.75% THC, then you can have it in um, body products or things like that. But in terms, I think having it as an ingest, ingestible agent, I don't think we haven't seen the same type of market as you've seen in the US. And it's not easier. I just had someone through CCIC just send an email saying, help, I'm trying to do a CBD trial and I'm having a terrible time getting through Health Canada. So I think we still have a lot of barriers. And again, I went to the Health House of Commons you know, in Ottawa. I went to our Senate where they were doing the Cannabis Act and, and inviting input. And a lot of those politicians that helped write that act had no idea the difference between CBD and THC, you know, to them, cannabis is cannabis is cannabis. And so I think I'm hoping that we've only seen the first version of these regulations, you know, the edibles came out now, hopefully they're going to do a review next year of the medical cannabis program. And we're really hoping that they maintain the medical cannabis program because there's rumble, rumbles that they want to get rid of it. And secondly, um, that perhaps they loosen some of the restrictions around research and lessen restrictions around CBD. Um, but CBD is not a panacea, you know, like having it in your body cream and your toothpaste and your cereal and your beer, like it, it's not going to be this wonder drug. Um, but in this, in the correct dosage, it could have some real potential. Well, I admire your passion for this field and, uh, it sounds like you're going to, you know, do a lot of studies and hopefully really impact, um, this area in Canada and probably beyond as well. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what, the conversation is going to look like, you know, five years from now, because this has changed so, so quickly. Um, you know, these kind of conversations that we're having, like you said, not just in professional work, but also personally, uh, attitudes are changing. Um, I'm just curious just to, to pivot um, to, you know, the, the, the ongoings of, of uh, what's going on in our society today. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious about your impression from a Canadian perspective on what's going on with race relations and Black Lives Matter, um, you know, and just give us your perspective uh, of how it's being perceived in Canada and what your what your thoughts are. Yeah, um, thanks for asking that. I think this is such an important issue in our society right now, wherever you are in the world. Um, I think uh, Canada has been under the mistaken impression that we're not racist and that we've figured out race relations. And I think my response to that is that we're politely racist. Uh, we often aren't as overt, but there is definitely racism in our country. Uh, when it comes to cannabis, the most number of incarcerations, double to, you know, 60% higher are among Canadians that are Black and Canadians that are Indigenous. Uh, in terms of being picked up for possession and being incarcerated. Um, and so that definitely comes through very clearly in the data. I, I think that um, in Winnipeg, where I'm from, we had 20,000 people go to the Black Lives Matter uh, protest uh, at the legislature building uh, last Friday. Um, I think that we realize that we can do better. Um, we have a terrible history with our indigenous people. And in fact, just a couple of days after the tragic death of George Floyd, we had a young indigenous mother who was um, visited by the police on a wellness call because she had not responded to any of her family members' um, contacts over the past few days, who was shot to death. Um, 
because she was going through a, a mental health episode. And, you know, we are having some really long overdue conversations about defunding the police and redirecting those resources towards our mental health programs, uh, towards community programs, and to addressing poverty. Because until we address those types of disparities in our society, we'll continue to have crime and we're going to continue, you know, to have, you know, people of color being uh, targeted. And so I think we're, it's forced us to have a much deeper conversation in our country. One, to actually reflect on the racist attitudes that exist and our, 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 you know, our own assumptions that we live with daily. It's forcing our institutions, like our educational institutions, to look closely at the makeup of our faculty, to look at our programs, to look at the content of our education, and really look hard at where um, we have discriminated or we are not showcasing, um, you know, people of color and our indigenous people. And so I think um, we may not have that overt, the overt violence and the overt racism um, that we are, you know, seeing in the United States, but it exists. And I think we need to take advantage of this time uh, to learn from it and to hopefully grow. Uh, and um, I, I, I'm, I'm positive that we will. Canadians, Canadians really support equality. Um, I think it's, it, again, it's part of, of who we are as people. Many of us um, still hold very deeply to our immigrant roots and our immigrant communities. And I think it's made us a little bit more tolerant. Um, but we need to address some of the disparities that still exist, and especially our relationship with Indigenous people. Um, which we have done a very poor job on, you know, and and I think we fool ourselves in thinking that we haven't. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling a bit now. No, but, no, uh, no. I, I think, yeah, um, I mean... It's a tough issue. <laughs> it is a tough issue, but I mean, bottom line is racism is unhealthy. And, yes. uh, you know, people say it's it's always going to be there, etc. But I, I don't think the goal is necessarily to say, okay, we're never going to have racism. It's just that you want to minimize you know, how it impacts people and you want everybody to get a fair shake. Um, and I'm also optimistic. I think that uh, this is another unpredictable event. It's, you know, just kind of like, you know, we've been seeing events like, you know, the, the killing of George, George Floyd uh, recurrently. And you just don't know when is enough going to be enough. And I, I do feel like with the massive protests really around the world, um, people have woken up, and I, I hope that opens eyes. I think one of the things that I loved that you talked about that um, I hear a lot uh, from Canadians is talking about Indigenous people. I think lost in this conversation sometimes is also the incredible injustice that's been done to Indigenous peoples in uh, both Canada and the U.S., and I think it's good for us to remember and talk about it um, because they also deserve justice and should be, in some ways, included in this conversation, either, whether it's now or in the future. You know, I mean, we're focused primarily on Black Lives Matters right now, but I think that um, Indigenous peoples also deserve uh, a lot of the same um, voices to be heard and have a lot of the same stories and their own issues that need to be uh, addressed. And, and I think the real challenge with Indigenous rights is is they're so embedded in the structures in our society and our, our statutes. You know, we still have a, a, a native health act. You know, there's a lot that needs to be undone. You know, there's a lot in this country. We've gone through a, a truth and reconciliation process. We are, have gone through a murdered and missing Indigenous women's inquiry. You know, we are trying to do reconciliation at this time. And, and a lot of, of our, um, a lot of our activities are focused on that. But at sometimes it's just, it's just word speak. You know, we, you know, I do my land acknowledgement before my lecture, you know, but how much of my content is coming from Indigenous scholars? How much is, is, is reflecting, you know, our colonial past? And I'll be honest, you know, the whole notion of white fragility is, is something that I personally never really understood until the last couple of weeks. And I've started doing some reading about it. 
and starting to really understand the privilege that I have um, and just starting to understand how I'm a settler in this country. And that's not going to go away, you know, no matter how many generations my family's been here, I'm, I'm truly a settler on other people's lands. Uh, and I think it's going to really shift my interactions, uh, including I have many friends that are Indigenous, and we've had some really fascinating conversations over the last couple of weeks about the racism that they've experienced um, and my how I am as a settler. And, and I guess, the you know, for everyone that's listening to this, the one thing I'd really encourage you is to listen, to listen to people's stories, to try to understand their perspective and to encourage you know, people to teach you, you know, to, to, to learn from them and to say, if I'm doing something wrong, if I've got it, you know, wrong, please tell me, you know, please help me on this journey. So I think I really hope, you know, you combine this with the pandemic and it's like a perfect storm for self-reflection. Absolutely. And I just hope that goes all the way up to the tops of our government. Well, we need that. But uh, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've enjoyed our conversations. You know, we're both really involved with Society for Integrative Oncology. And, uh, you know, for anybody listening out there, uh, you know, many of us are very passionate about this subject and really, uh, you know, are devoted to inclusivity and diversity and uh, focusing on this as a healthcare issue as well. Um, and, you know, just to bring it full circle, um, cannabis and the outlawing of cannabis has a lot of foundations in racism, you know, as we all know. So, I don't, that's why I'm not using marijuana, this whole conversation, because it itself is a racialized term. So, right. yeah, it's, uh, it's, it does come full circle. <laughs> well, thanks, Linda. I really appreciate this conversation. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about everything that you're doing. I mean, you just sound so enthusiastic. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see a lot of awesome studies coming out of Canada. Fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Santos, for the time. Take care.